Welcome to The Great Social Experiment, Episode 4. Getting an organ offer shortly after being added to the waitlist seems to defy reality. That the wait we often hear about is exaggerated. That if you somehow defy the odds of getting on the list, mission accomplished. But in reality, once on the list, most patients land at the base of a very steep mountain. The odds that after five years, you'll either still be waiting, will be removed from the list because you're too sick, or will die waiting, is greater than 50%. Part of this is supply and demand. Only one out of a thousand people die in a way that allows their organs to be donated. And despite the promise of living donation, currently two-thirds of all transplanted kidneys in the U.S. come from deceased donors. Deceased donation is both selfless and strangely morbid. On the one hand, a person, should they die, is willing to donate their organs to save someone in need. And on the other hand, the person in need is literally waiting for somebody else to die so that they can live. The best phone call that they will ever get is predicated on somebody else dying. Here again is patient Daryl Taylor describing that moment. And said, Mr. Taylor, we think we have your kidney. How fast can you get to the hospital? Blew my mind. Blew my mind. I couldn't even tell you how to get to Emory. JD came and grabbed the phone and talked to her because I was in shock. I was speechless. Never have I been speechless. That call often comes after years of waiting. In regions like California, up to eight to 10 years. That kind of patience for the promise of something better isn't something that most healthy people can register. So if you're a patient, who is chronically ill, just existing from day to day, who has already waited years, the idea that most people will get an organ offer shortly after being listed sounds like a bad joke. An alternate, time-warped fantasy in which they somehow landed at the base of that mountain with a jetpack. Here again, Dr. Summit Mohan. So the median time to the first offer, once you have joined the waitlist, has dropped to 14 days. Now you're thinking that these organs must be bad, which is the first thing I thought. But that's not the case, because the organs we're talking about were used. So that means 50% of patients get their first organ offer for a kidney that is eventually transplanted into somebody within 14 days. Oh my God. That's crazy. That is crazy. Crazy because the overwhelming bulk of doctors probably don't know this. And that once included Dr. Mohan. And I had no understanding of either how kidneys are allocated or how the transplant system worked or even how transplants worked. Despite the fact that, you know, you spend a couple of months as part of your general nephrology training at a transplant center getting exposure. He had been working as a nephrologist in a dialysis clinic for five years. None of my patients ever got transplanted. We had a dismal transplant rate. So he goes back to school for a year at Columbia University to study transplant nephrology. 
But what I realized in the process was that there were so many things about the system that we did not fully understand that were working to the detriment of our patients. But to understand those things and the seemingly impossible paradox of how patients could get offered an organ so fast but still end up waiting years, you have to understand how organs are allocated. The algorithm that ranks patients on the waitlist is perhaps one of the most fair and objective things in all of healthcare. It doesn't care about your race or wealth. It ranks patients based upon prudent criteria. While the algorithm is complex, the rest is pretty simple. When a kidney becomes available, it's offered to the transplant center that represents the patient at the top of the list. That center has one hour to either accept or reject the kidney for that patient before the Organ Procurement Organization, or OPO, continues down the list. But so often, and it's hard to believe, kidneys are rejected so many times that the OPO continues so far down that the offer is made to patients who literally just got on the list. This in itself doesn't sound necessarily bad. In fact, when I started producing this series, I didn't plan on talking about transplant centers. But ultimately, access to care is meaningless to a person if they don't get the care. And when I started delving into why patients are getting offers so fast, because transplant centers are rejecting so many organs, some of the same themes re-emerged. A lack of information, financial incentives, and deadly consequences. And with transplant centers, this lack of information actually starts even before patients get on the list. I guess the best place to start is a recognition that the doctors at transplant centers are uniquely the only physicians in healthcare that actually get to pick their patients. If you want a transplant, you have to get evaluated and then selected. Like the birth of dialysis, as long as a resource, in this case organs, remains extremely rare, someone has to decide who gets it. There's no way around that. In essence, we went from one God committee to selection committees at 250 plus transplant centers, each with their own policies and protocols, deciding who gets into their program and the promise of a better and longer life. I was turned down uh, maybe three times, I think. So you may go to Transplant Center X, be told that you're not a candidate for transplant and we're not going to add you onto the wait list because you're too heavy. And they said, Mr. Taylor, you just need to lose weight. What I don't tell you is that the other transplant center down the road is willing to do obese patients and you would be a candidate there and therefore you should go there to get waitlisted. As far as exercising? I couldn't work with enough energy to do any exercise. Nobody tells them that. Why don't they tell them? Because A, I don't know what their center 
protocols are. And B, even if I know what their center protocols are, they are either a competitor or I have no incentive to do that. Right? Nothing at the time where I'm trying to, you know, I'm sharing bad news with you and saying, I'm sorry, but we don't think you're a candidate for transplant. It's rare that we're going to say, oh, by the way, but, you know, our competitor, they're much better at this. You should go see them. So you spend the next who knows how many months or years trying to lose weight. Meanwhile, your condition worsens because you're on dialysis. So much that by the next time you get evaluated, if you live that long, you now have a host of other problems too, which gets you rejected again. All because you didn't have the right information. But let's say you are accepted. You're thrilled. In your mind, you're finally on that list. And when it's your turn, it's your turn. But So in New York City, not necessarily. There are nine or ten transplant centers within relatively close vicinity of where we are right now. The probability of getting a transplant within three years ranges from 5% to 35%. That's a seven-fold variation in a 20-mile radius. And it's not because these centers are offered relatively fewer organs than others in their region. The algorithm is objective. It's because they reject more of the offers they're given. Now, as a patient, you have no way of knowing that. Think about that. If you're one of the 50% of patients that will die within three years of starting dialysis, Getting accepted at a center that transplants 5% of its newly listed patients within that period is practically meaningless. That's life-saving information, which you didn't know, and in all likelihood, neither did the doctor or social worker that referred you. Now, you're probably not gasping in surprise, considering this lack of transparency is a hallmark of our whole healthcare system. But This does get worse. But to appreciate how, it's best to start off by knowing that even though we have a serious organ shortage, we're tossing one in five kidneys in the trash. According to government data, in 2019, a full 4,325 kidneys were discarded. Among the reasons given, many are medical. But two stand out. One, only about 1% had anything to do with the intended recipient. And two, the most common reason given at the very top of the list, accounting for 44% of discards, was no recipient located. Meaning almost half the kidneys found their way into the trash not because they couldn't be used, but presumably for no other reason than every transplant center across our entire country, rejecting them, literally, for every patient on their wait list. Now, again, you're probably thinking that these organs must be bad. So when we say we think that the majority of organs that we're discarding are transplantable, we get a reasonable amount of pushback when we say that. And it's because what his work has unearthed is just really hard to swallow. You've got to remember, transplant centers are very serious about being trusted stewards of this extremely rare resource. And it's not just because of their own patients, 
but the families of donors who are forced to wrestle with permitting multiple incisions into their loved ones at the height of their grief. If organs are being thrown out, they better be bad. And here's a cohort of researchers saying that most of the kidneys being tossed out shouldn't be. That's a bold statement on the practice of colleagues in your own field. And it's not something that's lost on Dr. Mohan. When I asked to interview him, I could sense a little trepidation. In fact, when we originally spoke, he was busy applying for grants, and I could tell he wouldn't be let down if I somehow forgot to follow up. It's worth noting, though, that Dr. Mohan didn't come to this conclusion with a gut feeling that more organs should be used. It was actually the opposite. One of the very first things that happened was we have a reasonably aggressive surgical program, and they had accepted a kidney from a diabetic donor. And I thought that was just mind-blowing. I was like, wait a minute. This person who's donated this kidney had years and years of diabetes. That kidney is probably diseased as well and probably not going to do well. And the surgeon I was talking to was like, no, this is going to do well. This is better than being on dialysis. This makes sense. And I was like, this, this cannot be right. So we went back and we said, okay, let's look at this. And there wasn't a study. Nobody had looked at this. We don't know how these kidneys do. Why are we using them? That was the question I had in my mind. And I, here I was going to prove myself right, prove the surgeons to be wrong, and going to change the world. And instead, what I discovered, diabetic kidneys did frequently better than many other subtypes of kidneys, that using a diabetic kidney actually made a lot of sense. And not only did it make a lot of sense, 50% or more of kidneys procured from deceased diabetic donors were finding their way into the trash. In general, the quality of a kidney often mirrors the health and age of its donor, which is to say, without any literature suggesting otherwise, a surgeon could be forgiven for passing on a diabetic kidney. And if that were the end of the story, there might not have been any pushback. But there's one helpful clue about kidneys. And that is, we each have two. Every single donor has two kidneys, okay? There is no systemic disease process, including aging, that affects one kidney more than the other. Have you ever told yourself that you could never donate a kidney because if one goes bad, at least you'll have the other? They may be anatomic lab normalities, an individual tumor, rare events that affect one side and not the other. Chances are, if you're gonna lose one kidney, you're going to lose both. The health of one kidney should mirror the other. And that also holds true for people on life support. So the, the likelihood that you're going to end up with a donor where one kidney gets used and the other kidney doesn't get used should be a relatively rare occurrence, a 1% or less occurrence. So we went back and we said, okay, let's look at all the kidneys that are procured and let's see if we can identify instances where there's a discordant outcome. One kidney got used and the other one didn't. So we went back and we looked for them and we weren't expecting to find many, to be completely honest. We found 800 per year. So we're talking about almost 10% of cases. We we're expecting 1%, we're looking at 10%. But the challenge becomes this. So one kidney got used, one didn't. Now, how do you know who's right? 
One could argue that neither kidney ought to have been used. You have done harm to the patient where you gave them a kidney that didn't work, right? So we looked at outcomes and said, okay, for the kidneys that did get used, how did they do? And in almost every instance of those where one kidney got used, they did as well as a similar kidney where both kidneys got used. Suggesting that in almost every one of those cases, the decision to not use the other kidney was the wrong one. Now, this gets worse. But before we get into that, how does any of this make sense? Unlike everyone else, transplant centers actually make money for every transplant they do. So you would think that they would be vying to do as many as possible. But not only are transplant centers very selective about their patients, they reject so many organs that 20% end up in the trash. It's a complicated answer, but essentially it is because there are different thresholds and different centers have different acceptance levels of what they are willing to accept or not accept. Some surgeons are pickier than others. And heck, if you're the patient and you've been waiting years to get to the top of the list, you want that. You want the best organ you can get. And remember, when a surgeon passes on an organ, They aren't saying that these organs should be thrown out. They're just passing on them for their own patients. And there's an optimism bias that surgeons have that I think most people can relate to, because it happens all the time with dating. The idea that you'll pass on this person or kidney because you think something better will come along soon. If you're at the top of the list, waiting another two weeks for a better organ after you've already waited five years, could be a no-brainer. And there's a pessimism bias that also happens with dating. Have you ever looked at someone who's 40 and single and thought, I don't know what it is, but something must be wrong there? Well, imagine you're a surgeon getting an offer for a kidney that literally half the country has already passed on. So you can see how even the most well-intentioned surgeons might pass on an organ contributing to all those that end up in the trash. And the surgeons I've spoken with acknowledge it. And finally, there's this one last dating analogy that comes into play that's not as easy to talk about. And that's if you swipe right or ask for somebody's number because you're lonely at the time, but never follow up. And don't pretend you don't know what I'm talking about. You're bored, it's Saturday night, all your friends are on dates, and you? Of course, when you go someone that you've met on a dating app, you don't have to give a reason. They have to check a box. But transplant centers do. And if they're declining a kidney, and it's not a recipient-related factor, they have to provide another reason. And when you actually take a look at their reasons for rejecting organs, something curious is going on. So we rank kidneys in terms of quality from 1 to 99, right? It's a percentile score. You would expect that as you get to the lower quality kidneys, that the proportion of times that somebody invokes the quality of the organ as the reason to decline it would increase. And as you stay at the higher end of the percentile ranking, the 1, the 2, the 3 percentile kidneys, right? They're the best kidneys out there. The supermodels. There's no way there's anything wrong with the donor quality there. But when you look at the codes 
that centers put in for declining kidneys, they almost invariably say donor quality, whether it's of the 5th percentile, the 10th, the 20th, or the 99th. Imagine you're single and your friend is a matchmaker. You find out through the grapevine that she meets Angelina Jolie, dressed for the Oscars, who is also single. You can't wait to be set up. But that doesn't happen. Now, your friend knows you're single, so you begin to ask around. And you hear through a source that when your matchmaker friend met Angelina, she thought, eh, nothing special. And on top of that, you learn that she also had the same response to Scarlett Johansson, Beyonce, Jessica Biel, and Penelope Cruz. All in all, you might find that hard to believe. You might think something else is going on. Now, the less cerebral of us might walk away and grumble, boy, did this matchmaker pick the wrong career. But most of us would take a hard look in the mirror, let out a sigh, and sadly accept we're not Brad Pitt. Which is to say that in the transplant world, if a surgeon isn't really passing on a kidney because of the kidney, because it's so good, then that kind of leaves only one other variable, the patient. You could say, all right, so transplant centers are still, they're trying to do the right thing. And they're, you know, they're only bypassing patients when they feel like it's appropriate to do so. And that may be true, perhaps. It's hard to believe that's true anymore, at least from the national data. But that's certainly what every transplant center will tell you that they're doing, right? What we're starting to see, however, is increasing subjectivity in who gets passed over when there is an organ offer. So people with a BMI above 30, that is obese patients, more likely to get passed over. Patients with diabetes, more likely to get passed over. Men, more likely to get passed over. Hispanics, more likely to get passed over. So you take an incredibly objective allocation system that has very precise scoring to determine how somebody gets rank ordered for a particular kidney. And then you have transplant centers who then have the ability to insert their preferences in terms of who they want to transplant and which organs they're willing to accept with essentially no accountability. If you go back to 1998, 12,454 transplants were done in the United States. And from there, it just keeps going up. That is until you get to 2007. In 2007, the Center for Medicare Services introduced a measure of evaluating transplant center outcomes at the end of the first year. Medicare published scorecards of patient and graft survival. The latter, how long that new transplanted kidney lasts. And if a center didn't do well compared to the national average, they could be penalized or even put on probation. We can't forget about the transplant centers and what governs their behavior. Professor Rachel Patzer again. If you're a transplant center and have a patient that's coming to you that maybe is a little bit higher risk, you know, maybe they're not a perfect candidate. Yes, when you look at the survival estimates, they would do much better with a transplant compared to dialysis. 
The incentive for the transplant center might be to not transplant that patient because they're worried about their post-transplant outcomes. And so to have good outcomes, people started to become more conservative in their choice of organs and more conservative in their choice of patients. If you're going to financially penalize us for less than average outcomes, then we're going to stick to the best donors and best recipients, is what a transplant surgeon would tell you. And the best recipients? Not obese. More likely to get passed over. Or diabetic. More likely to get passed over. And while Medicare has since withdrawn the threat of penalties, realizing that it may have caused harm, private insurance companies have not. And even though private insurers cover a minority of patients, it isn't insignificant. And the transplant surgeons I've spoken to point to that. So, case closed? Not exactly. Because it doesn't seem to completely add up. Remember, transplant centers are pointing to the threat of penalties for less than average outcomes. But that is very different than passing over patients you admitted into your own program. Patients you admitted, presumably because you were confident they could have a good outcome. And you have to remember that when when centers turn down an organ, except for the 3,500 that are ending up in the trash, some other center is accepting that organ, right? So what you're claiming to be too high risk for your patient or too high risk for your center because it's going to somehow have an inferior outcome is being used by somebody else down the line successfully for their patients. And of course, this passing over their own patients happens so often that 50% of patients will get their first organ offer within 14 days for a kidney that was eventually transplanted into someone else down the line. Senator Chafee. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ms. Heckler, I'd like to briefly discuss Medicare. This is a Senate confirmation hearing for Margaret Heckler, former Secretary of Health and Human Services, in 1983. Uh, This is a problem where the costs are rising far more rapidly than other costs. By 1980, Medicare was spending almost six times as much on hospitalizations as they did in 1970. And the Senate wanted to know how Secretary Heckler would address this. What suggestions do you have? Uh, The fact is, in hospital costs and medical costs, inflation has not been curtailed. Basically, after Medicare became law, Hospital stays and costs shot up. Imagine you're a hospital and everyone over the age of 65 is guaranteed payment. The more the merrier, right? And stay as long as you want. Uh, the, the fact is that the prospective payment reimbursement will, I believe, make a very major difference. The prospective payment, it changed how Medicare reimbursed hospitals. Instead of paying a la carte, Medicare would pay a fixed rate for specific diagnoses. This is why many of us have experienced or heard stories of hospitals wanting to discharge us earlier than we're comfortable with. They get reimbursed the same amount, regardless how long we stay, and can lose money if we're there too long. And in the transplant world, who is more likely to have a longer stay from complications which result in higher costs? 
obese, more likely to get passed over, and diabetic patients, more likely to get passed over. Of course, most transplant centers would deny passing over these patients for financial reasons or a change of heart. The equivalent of asking for a number or admitting a patient into your program and then never calling. They would say they always transplant equitably and that when patients are passed over, it's because of medical judgment. But that doesn't square with the fact that these patients are being disproportionately passed over. And almost every time centers do pass on a chance to transplant, they blame the donor and not the recipient, regardless how good the donor organ is. And these are just those disproportionately passed over compared to the baseline. But the baseline is also being systematically passed over, considering how fast patients are getting their first organ offer. And all of this is done with essentially no accountability. Which brings us back to this. Now, this gets worse. So, the transplant center chose to pass up on the kidney, as did somebody else, as did somebody else, and it finally found its way into the trash. But it's also possible that somebody passed up on it, the next transplant center passed up on it, and the third transplant center said, I'm going to use it, used it, and it went on to do well. The patient at transplant center one and two that was offered that kidney do not know that, that they got an organ offer. They're completely unaware. There is no requirement to tell that patient. And in fact, in the majority of instances, transplant centers do not tell patients when we've declined an organ for them. What percentage of declines are not told? 99.99%. Oh, wow. We almost never tell somebody that we had an organ offer that we've declined for you. They aren't part of that decision. Now you could say, well, the transplant centers are trying to do the right thing. We're declining a kidney because we don't think it's the right kidney for this person. We'll take the next one. The problem is when you look at what happens to the patients when you decline the kidney, the outcomes are not good. 10% of patients who've had an organ offer declined on their behalf without their knowledge go on to die without a transplant. Another 20% come off the wait list because they're too sick to be transplanted. So fully a third of patients come off the wait list for the wrong reason. It's hard for anybody to say that the organ quality and the transplant would have been a worse outcome than them dying. How many offers do these people get? before they die or before they're removed? So the median number of offers is 16 offers. Wow. And these kidneys that were passed up did get transplanted in somebody else? We're talking only about transplanted kidneys. We're not talking about the 3,500 that should have been used but were not. Dying. After 16 offers for kidneys that were ultimately transplanted into someone else. But think about it. If you had a family member who's on dialysis, who died waiting for a transplant, how would you feel if you knew that their transplant center passed up 16 opportunities to get a transplant? 
and it's spread out over multiple years. It's not like they was clustered in the last week before they died or in the month before they died. It's over multiple years. And I think patients would be up in arms if they knew about this. As I said, hard to swallow. We need to be less paternalistic. We need to be more patient-centered. And the way we are going to be more patient-centered about this is by including patients in the decision-making. By informing them. But it's hard to do in this very time-constrained, rapidly moving process. Transplant centers have 30 to 60 minutes. They have a lot of information about the donor to understand and incorporate, which frequently is happening in the middle of the night. How do you include a patient, likely already exhausted from dialysis, in the decision-making at 3 a.m. in the morning? You don't. You do it beforehand. Patients don't need to know in real time, but they need to be part of the conversation so they can understand it. So think of it as advanced directives, right? You don't ask somebody if they want CPR while they're receiving CPR. You ask them weeks and months ahead of time. What kind of organ are you willing to accept? Here is how we rank organs, and here are the expected outcomes from accepting an organ from a donor who is this old or who's diabetic for a person in your condition. And just as important, what are the consequences of not accepting? It is this very asynchronous decision-making made well in advance that makes most transplants in our country even possible. When I decided to be an organ donor, it was at the DMV. So we could easily see a situation where a transplant center or the transplant network sends every patient a letter once every six months that says, hey, by the way, you got an offer from a 65-year-old kidney and a 45-year-old kidney that your transplant center said no to on your behalf. Now, you may have patients who will be like, totally, I only want a much better kidney than that. My transplant center totally gets what I need. Or you may be like, wait, what did you do? Why would you do that? I'm having such a miserable time on dialysis. I will take anything to get off dialysis. The idea is that if there's some accountability and patient involvement, transplant centers wouldn't pass on as many organs and far fewer would be thrown out. Accountability would force centers to be more equitable and patient-centered. Remember, when they flat-out reject an organ for all their patients, which happens all the time, it can really be a missed opportunity. They're saying no to an organ without thinking about which individual patients they're being offered to. They're looking at the organ and saying, I don't want to use this kidney. Not realizing in many, many instances that it is people who have just been added to the wait list. And giving somebody who's just been added a wait list a kidney, that kidney will do better because that patient is also healthier. And so those outcomes are better because they've not spent years on dialysis. So it's hard for me to imagine that somebody who was added to the wait list last week and has the opportunity to take a kidney would be like, no, I'd rather wait the five years struggle on dialysis in the hope that I'm going to get a marginally better kidney five years down the line. When Lance started dialysis, this is the system he landed in. One in which at no point along the whole continuum of care does any provider, including transplant centers, have an incentive to get the most patients transplanted. 
And as for Lance, he wasn't passed over. He was listed, immediately jumped to the top of the list because he was given credit for all the time he spent on dialysis. And then not much time passed before in March of 2018, after 18 years of living on a machine, he developed a blood clot in his arm, blocking the flow required for dialysis. The rest of Lance's story in the next episode. The Great Social Experiment was created, produced, and edited by me, David Chrisman. It was engineered and mixed by Samuel Chacintu. If you'd like this series, please share it, subscribe, and leave a review. And if you want to support my work, or you're a patient in need of resources, or just want to learn more, please visit thegreatsocialexperiment.net. That's thegreatsocialexperiment.net. Thanks.